Amen. All right, well, we're there in the book of Esther. I'd like you to keep your place in Esther. That is our text for this morning. But go with me, if you would, to the New Testament book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 4. In the New Testament, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then you have the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter number 4. And uh, today, we are continuing our series on Sunday mornings. We've been going through a series called For Such a Time as This. And it has been a verse-by-verse study through the book of Esther. Today's going to be a little bit different of a sermon. And I'm going to be dealing with a subject from the book of Esther that I've pretty much been ignoring the entire time that we've been in the book of Esther. This is a subject that has came up throughout the book. And I've chosen not to deal with it because I want to deal with all of it in one sitting and in one sermon. And the subject that I'm dealing with this morning is the subject of typology in the book of Esther. Typology in the book of Esther. And for those of you that are not familiar with that word, typology is the study and interpretation of types and symbols originally, uh, especially uh, uh, in the Bible. So typology is this thing we see throughout the Bible where you'll have these stories, and they are real stories, historical accounts that took place, but they also serve as typology or as types of things in the New Testament, from the Old Testament, New Testament, or things in end times or uh, things of that nature. If you're in Galatians chapter number 4, I'll show you an example of this, probably the most uh, you know, specific one of these and of typology in Galatians 4. The Apostle Paul calls it an allegory. That's a biblical word for it, and that's a good work as well, uh, a word as well. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. He says, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman uh, was by promise. Notice verse 24, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. Verse 25, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. And here we have Paul using this story, Abraham had two sons, one of Sarah, one of Hagar. And these sons were born, one of a bondwoman, one of a free woman. These things actually happen. You can go back to the book of Genesis and read about the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac. And you can read of these two women. But Paul uses it and he says this was a historical event. But it was also an allegory. It was a typology. It was a type. And he explains that the one that was born of the bondwoman pictures the the unbelieving Jews living in bondage. And the one that was born of the free woman, the child of promised, pictures the New Testament believer and those that are uh, saved by faith. And, uh, And I'm just showing this to you to show you an example of an allegory or typology throughout uh, the Bible. Go back to the book of Esther, if you would. Esther, uh, go, go to Esther chapter number one, if you would. Esther chapter number one. And what I want to explain to you this morning is that the entire book of Esther is a historic book. We find it in the historical section of the Bible. We find it in the section of Scripture that deals with the history of the nation of Israel. It was, it's a literal book. It actually happened. There really was a man named Mordecai. There really was a, a woman named Esther. There really was a, a, a Haman and all of that. All those things happened. But the book of Esther is also a big allegory. It actually happened, but it is a typology of things to come. In fact, we'll talk about this towards the end of the sermon. What's interesting is that the book of Esther actually chronologically ends the Old Testament. Now, obviously, when you read the book of Esther, you're not at the literal end of the Old Testament in the way it's put in your Bible. But if you understand how our Bible is laid out, and I don't have time, I have a lot to cover this morning, and 
I'll try to explain this quickly. You'll notice that our Bible is laid out in different sections. We have, especially the Old Testament, you have the law or the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you have the section known as the historical books. You have Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. These are all books that tell us of the history of the nation of Israel. Then you have the poetic books, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Then you have the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Then you have the minor prophets, Daniel through the book of Malachi. All of these books are divided, not necessarily in chronological order, but by section. However, within those sections, they are divided in chronological order. For example, when you look at the major prophets, Isaiah came before Jeremiah, who came before Ezekiel, who came before Daniel. Then you start the minor prophets. Hosea is a contemporary of Isaiah, and you go forward in that chronological order. I'm saying all that to say this. When you get to the end of the historical section of the Bible, you have the book of Esther, literally the end of the Old Testament history. And what God does is he gives us this book of Esther, which is the last in the chronology historically of the Old Testament, and he allows it to be a huge allegory of things to come in the New Testament. So I'm going to give you 12 statements this morning. It's 12 of them, so we got to move quickly, all right? 12 statements, 12 allegories, 12 typologies that I see in the book of Esther, and I'd encourage you to write these down. Now, let me just say a couple things. First of all, uh, just know this. I'm breaking my own preaching rule, okay? For those of you in my leadership class, when I teach the guys to preach, I teach them to not have information overload sermons, sermons with so much information that it's difficult for people to keep up. I'm breaking that rule. I realize this sermon's gonna be information overload, but I I don't have the time to break the sermon up into several sermons, so we're just gonna have to do it all in one sitting, all right? Um, So just stick around, just, just, you know, grab some water if you need it or whatever, but we're gonna... um, go move through this, and we're going to do, uh, do it as quickly as we can. With that said, usually I preach very highly practical, applicable type sermons. This, this morning is going to be more like a Bible study, so be ready to flip through your Bible, take notes. I'll give you some application at the end, but it's going to be very much a uh, Bible study. And we're doing this today because next Sunday is Easter, and we're actually going to finish the book of Esther on Easter. Esther chapter 10 has three verses in it, and it actually correlates, and there's a, uh, a connection, there's a tie-in with Easter. So we're going to spend Easter with Esther next week, all right, as we finish the book of Esther. But for today, we're going to look at typology in the book of Esther, 12 statements um, in the book of Esther. And for sake of transparency, let me say this. You know, most of these are things that I noticed as I was studying through the book of Esther, things that I came up with on my own. Obviously, some of these things are things that have been taught, you know, for years. I've heard many preachers point out several of these things, but I want to give you 12 statements. I'm not saying it's a comprehensive list. In fact, I'm sure there's more stuff in the book of Esther that I may have missed, but 12 typologies in the book of Esther. You ready? Uh, so we'll, I'll give you the first one. Number one, go to Esther chapter one. And look at verse number three. Notice how the book of Esther begins. Esther chapter one, verse three. In the third year of his reign, and of course he is there referring to King Ahasuerus, he made a feast unto all his princes and his servants, the power of Persia and Media, and the nobles and princes of the provinces being before him when he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty many days, even in hundred and fourscore days. If you remember the book of Esther, and we have pretty much have preached through the entire book of Esther at this point. Hopefully you've been with us and you're familiar with the book of Esther. The book of Esther begins with King Ahasuerus throwing a big party for himself in his own glory. The Bible says there that he made a feast unto all the princes and his servants. Verse 4, he showed the riches of his glorious kingdom and the honor of his excellent majesty. Now, I'd like you to keep your place in Esther. That's our text for this morning. Go with me to the New Testament book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. The first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 22. And do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or something in the book of Matthew because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to Matthew throughout the sermon especially towards the beginning. While you turn there, let me go ahead and give you the answer key 
in advance for this allegory or this typology. This will help you understand the book of Esther when we're talking about typology. The answer key uh, is is the, the way for you to understand. The book is an allegory. It's, it's, it has these characters that represent other characters in the New Testament, okay? So let me give you the answer key just so you can understand the book as we move to do it. Ahasuerus, in my opinion, and different people disagree with this and, 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 and have different views on it, and that's fine. I'll just give you my thoughts on it. Ahasuerus is a picture or a type or a representation. The Bible calls them symbols, foreshadows as well, of God the Father. So Ahasuerus, in this typology, in this play of uh, allegory is a type of God the Father. Mordecai is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther is a type of New Testament believers. Vashti is a type of the unbelieving Jews, and Haman is a type of the Antichrist. And that's what we're going to use as the basis of unraveling this typology in the book of Esther. Ahasuerus represents God the Father. Mordecai represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther represents the New Testament believers. Vashti represents the uh, unbelieving Jews. Haman represents the Antichrist. With that said, go to Matthew 22. Notice how the book begins. The book begins with Ahasuerus throwing a party in his own glory. Now, in the same way that Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory, God the Father also throws a party for his own glory. Now, let me just explain something real quickly. Sometimes when we look at parables or allegories or typology, we notice unrighteous people representing righteous people. That's okay. Don't get hung up on that. You say, well, Ahasuerus was a wicked man, Throwing this party, it was prideful. It wasn't something he should have he done. That's true. It pictures God the Father. When God the Father throws a, a party in his own glory, there's nothing wrong with that. And we find this throughout the, uh, the Bible that oftentimes you have unrighteous people representing righteous people. Let me give you an example. Jesus gave a parable of the unjust uh, uh, judge. Remember the unjust judge? In that parable, the unjust judge was a type of God the Father. So we had God the Father represented by someone that was unrighteous. Let me say this just as we get started as well. In regards to symbolism, typology, allegories in the Bible. Someone said this, symbolism in the Bible, symbolisms in the Bible are like an old truck. It'll get you where you need to go, but it will eventually break down, okay? So don't take symbolism too far or get too hung up on it. There's symbolism here, but there does come a point, obviously, when it no longer works. But the first thing I want you to notice is that Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory. God the Father also throws a party. Matthew 22, we have Jesus giving a parable explaining this idea. Matthew 22, look at verse 1. And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parables and said, notice what Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king. Now the certain king in this parable represents God the Father, which made a marriage. What's a marriage? It's a big party, which threw a party for who? For his son. Who's the son? The Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it was a fancy party. Look down at verse 4. I don't have time to read all the verses this morning because we've got so much to cover, but look at verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants saying, tell them which are bidden, behold. Notice what the king, God the Father, says, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready Come unto the marriage. And of course, we understand that the marriage in this parable is actually a picture of salvation. This will be a literal feast called the marriage supper of the Lamb that will take place in the end times with all believers. But here we see that the same way that Ahasuerus throws this big party, big fancy party in his honor, in that same way, we see God the Father also throws a party for his own glory called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Keep your finger there in Matthew 22. We're going to come back to it. Go back to the book of Esther. Look at verse number 11. So number one, in the same way that Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory, God the Father also throws a party for his own glory. Number two, 
If you remember in the book of Esther, when Ahasuerus is throwing this party, he invites his wife Vashti to the party. Look at verse 11, Esther chapter 1, verse 11. He's telling his servants, he's commanding them, to bring Vashti, the queen, before the king with the crown royal, to show the people and the princes her beauty, for she was fair to look upon. But the queen Vashti refused to come at the king's commandment. So we see that Ahasuerus throws a big party in his own glory, number one. And then we see, number two, that Ahasuerus invites Vashti to this party, but Vashti rejects Ahasuerus' invitation to the party. Ahasuerus says, hey, bring Vashti that I may show her off and her glory. And Vashti rejects the invitation, refuses not to come. Go back to Matthew 22. In the same way, because this is a type, it's an allegory. In the same way that Vashti rejects Ahasuerus' invitation to the party, the Jews, which is who Vashti represents in this book, rejected God's invitation to his party. Look at Matthew 22, verse 3. Remember, the king made this great marriage for his son. Verse 3. And he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. He invited people to the party. This is Old Testament Israel. This is, this is the Jews, the nation of Israel. He, he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding. Notice, and they would not come. The Jews refuse the invitation to salvation. They refuse the invitation to the marriage supper of the Lamb. He invited them. Remember Jesus, when he began his ministry, he said, he said during those three and a half years of his ministry, he said, go first to the Jews, then to the Greeks. He went to the Jews. He preached in, every, uh, uh, in all the cities and the villages of the nation of Israel. He invited them to the marriage. He invited them to, to salvation, but they would not come. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent forth other servants, saying, Tell them which are bidden. The word bidden means invited. Behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatlings are killed, and all things are ready. Come unto the marriage. Verse 5. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his merchandise. See, Ahasuerus is a type of God the Father. He throws a party in his own glory. God the Father does the same thing. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he invited the Jews to come and be a part of that and accept salvation. And in the same way that Vashti rejects the invitation of Ahasuerus, the Jews rejected the invitation of God the Father. This is why the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 11, you have to turn there, it says about Jesus that he came unto his own and his own received him not. Vashti rejects Ahasuerus' invitation to the party in the same way that the Jews reject God's invitation to salvation. So what happens with Vashti? Keep your finger there in Matthew 20, in Matthew. Go, go back to Esther chapter 1. What happens in our story, in our allegory? In the same way that Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory, God the Father throws a party for his own glory. In the same way that Vashti rejects Ahasuerus' invitation to the party, the Jews rejected God's invitation to salvation. Number three, in the same way that Esther replaces Vashti at the party, the New Testament believers replace the Jews. Amen. Esther chapter 1, look at verse 19. If it please the king, these are his counselors. Remember, after Vashti rejected the invitation, they get rid of Vashti. And again, this was wrong of King Ahasuerus to do, but not wrong of God to do. And they look for a replacement. If it please the king, let there go a royal commandment from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it be not altered, that Vashti come no more before the king, and let the king give her royal estate unto another, notice, that is better than she. It's interesting because in the book of Hebrews, we're told that God got rid of the Old Testament and gave us a better testament. 
a better covenant. Here we have the king Ahasuerus getting rid of Vashti, and they are looking for someone to give her royal estate unto another that is better than she. Look at uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 17. Esther chapter 2, verse 17. And the king loved Esther above all the women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown upon her head. Notice, and made her queen instead of Vashti. Go to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21. See, in the same way that Esther replaces Vashti, the Bible teaches that New Testament believers replace the Jews. Matthew 21. Look at verse 43. Matthew 21, verse 43. Notice what Jesus says to the Jews of his day. He says, Therefore, I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Jesus said, The kingdom of God, the work of God, the covenant of God, the oracles of God are going to be taken from you uh, uh, Jews, from you Vashti, and it's going to be given unto another nation. What nation is that? It's a new nation, a spiritual nation made up of believers. The Bible says that ye are a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people. The Bible says God says that he took the kingdom from the Jews and he gave them to a better nation the nation made up of spiritual believers in the same way that Esther replaced Vashti, New Testament believers replaced the Jews. And by the way, let me just say this. Yes, we believe in replacement theology. Amen. We're not dispensationalists. People have this idea and say, oh no, God never gave up on the Jews. God's not done with them, you know, at all. He's just kind of taking a break, but he's going to come back to the Jews. Really? No, no, Jesus must have not got the memo because he said the kingdom of God shall be taken from you. And given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. Look, we, we're, not, we're not your typical, you know, evangelical Jew-worshipping church around here. Now, you know, you say, oh, do you guys hate the Jews? You know what? The Jews are a false religion. And when we treat them as such, you know, and, and, and they're unsaved and they need to be saved and all of that, we understand that. It is an antichrist religion because they believe that there is a Christ, a Messiah, but they reject Jesus as that Christ. And the Bible teaches clearly that the kingdom was taken from them. I could spend all morning on that point. I'm not going to do that. Go to Matthew chapter 8. Let me give you another passage just as proof. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Notice what Jesus said. He says, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, looking at the Pharisees and the Jews of his day. Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west, and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is looking at the Jews of his day, and he's saying, look, many are going to come from the east and the west, talking about Gentiles, and they're going to sit down with the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice verse 12, but the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What's he saying? He's saying that many shall come, many Gentiles believing spiritual uh, 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 nation uh, of Israel will come at the kingdom of heaven and they'll sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but the children, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we see in this book of Esther that the same way that Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory. God the Father throws a party for his own glory. Invites everyone to the party. The same way that Ahasuerus invited Vashti and she rejected his invitation. God the Father invited the Jews to the marriage supper of the Lamb, but they rejected his invitation. In the same way that uh, Ahasuerus replaces Vashti with someone who's better than her, Esther, God the Father has replaced the unbelieving Jews with New Testament Believers, go back to Esther chapter 2. I've given you three so far. I got 12 of these, all right? So get ready. Esther chapter 2, look at verse 7. And he, we're going to just move through the book of Esther. I'm giving them to you in order as we move through the book of Esther. Esther chapter 2, verse 7. And he brought up Hadassah. Hadassah is... Esther's Jewish name. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Now, if you remember, Mordecai was Esther's cousin. The Bible says that he, Mordecai, brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his, Mordecai's uncle's daughter. 
So Esther was the cousin of Mordecai. Why did, Esther, why did Mordecai bring up Esther? For she had neither father nor mother. She was an orphan. Mordecai was obviously an older cousin. And he took her and raised her as his own. And the maid was fair and beautiful, whom Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for his own, took for his own daughter. He took Esther for his own daughter. Look at verse 15, Esther chapter 2, verse 15. Now, when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her for his daughter. Go to John in the New Testament, John chapter 20, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Here's statement number four. In the same way that Mordecai was a peer to Esther. Because usually when you think of cousins, you think of peers, don't you? You don't think of an authority figure. You've got aunts and uncles, moms and dads, those are the authority figures. And when moms and dads have children and aunts and uncles have children, those children are peers, they're cousins. Mordecai was a peer to Esther. See, it's interesting to me because when I read the book of Esther, I think to myself, why does God have to throw this detail in? It's not really needed for the story. He could have just said, you know, Mordecai was, was, was Esther's uncle. And when Esther's mom and dad died, he raised her. Now, obviously, this actually happened. Mordecai really was literally the cousin of Esther. But God could have made it so that it was an uncle, a brother. Why does God do this? See, Mordecai is a cousin to Esther, which usually is a connection, a relational connection, that puts you as a peer. But yet Mordecai was also an authority figure to Esther because he was her adopted father. See, Esther was an orphan. And in the same way that Mordecai was a peer to Esther and an authority to Esther, as a result of Esther being an orphan, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that you and I were spiritual orphans. The Bible says that we were without hope in this world. The Bible says that the unbelievers are bastards. That's a biblical word, by the way. Don't let that offend you. You say, why are they bastards? Because they're orphans. They're without a father. And in the same way that Mordecai was a peer to Esther as her cousin and an authority to Esther as her adopted father, did you know that Jesus is a peer to us and also an authority to us? You say, what do you mean? Well, first of all, he's an authority to us because he's God. He's a second member of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. His position as a second member of the Godhead makes him an authority to us to us because he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. John chapter 20, look at verse 28. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas? Remember what he said? After he put his fingers through the, the, the nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ and touched his thigh, John 20, 28, and Thomas answered and said unto him, notice what Thomas says to Jesus, my Lord and my God. See, Jesus is above us as the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God. Here's what's interesting. Jesus' position, go to the book of Romans, John Acts Romans, and like I told you, this morning's more like a Bible study. It might feel more like a Wednesday night, and that's okay. It's, it's okay to change things up from time to time. Romans, John Acts Romans. Here's what's interesting about Jesus. His position as a second member of the Godhead makes him our authority because he's God the Son, but it also makes him our peer because he's the Son of God. And guess who's also the Son of God? You and I if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Romans chapter 8 and verse 16 says this, the Spirit itself bear witness with our spirit. Romans 8, 16, the Spirit itself, the Holy Spirit, if you're saved, the Spirit itself, notice the capital S there, the Spirit itself bear witness with our lowercase s spirit that we are the children of God. 
The Holy Spirit gives you the assurance of your salvation. When you got saved, you became indwelled with the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit. You were uh, marked by the Holy Spirit. And it bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Verse 17, and if children, he says, if you're a child of God, if you're a son of God, if you're an heir, uh, a daughter of God, he says, then you're not just a child, you're an heir. He says, then heir. What does it mean to be an heir? It means that you're, you're going to get a, a, a reward. You're, 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 you're in the lineage. You're going to get the riches that come to the family. Notice verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Notice, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Amen. See, the same way that Mordecai was a peer to Esther as a cousin and an authority to Esther as an adopted father, Jesus Christ is a peer to us as the Son of God and is an authority to us as God the Son. And we find, you say, man, you know, why would God put that uh, little detail in the book of Esther? Because the book of Esther is an allegory. It's a type, it's a apology of things to come. Go back to the book of Esther, Esther chapter number 3. Ahasuerus throws a party for his own glory. God the Father throws a party for his own glory. Vashti rejects the invitation of Ahasuerus. The Jews reject the invitation of God the Father. Esther replaces Vashti. New Testament believers replace the Jews. Mordecai was a peer to Esther as a cousin and an authority to Esther as a father. Jesus is a peer to us as the Son of God and is an authority to us as God the Son. Number five. Let's move to end times prophecy. If you remember in the book of Esther, the villain comes in in chapter 3, right? Haman. And what's the first thing that happens with Haman? Esther chapter 3, verse 10. And the king took his ring from his hand. Now remember, Ahasuerus was the king of the world power at the time. The, the empire that ruled the world, the most powerful man on earth at the time, like the President of the United States, Ahasuerus was that man. And the Bible tells us in Esther chapter 3 and verse 10 that Ahasuerus took his ring from his hand, which is a symbol of authority, and gave it unto Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agite, the Jews' enemy. And the king said unto Haman, The silver is given to thee, the people also. If you remember the story, Haman has manipulated Ahasuerus into believing that the Jews are the enemies and that they must get rid of the Jews. And Haman, and, and Ahasuerus gives the ring to Haman, gives him the authority, gives him the resources, the silver is given to thee, verse 11, the people also to do with them as it seemeth good to thee. Notice verse 12, Then were the king's scribes called on, all, on the thirteenth day of the first month, and there was written according to all that Haman had commanded unto the king's lieutenants and to the governors that were over every providence and to the rulers of every people of every providence according to the writing thereof and to every people after their language in the name of the king of Ahasuerus was it written. Now, if you remember, I don't want you to turn there, but if you remember when the book of Esther starts, in fact, the very first book of cha- uh, verse in chapter 1 says that Ahasuerus reigned from India even unto Ethiopia over in 107 and 20 provinces. The only time in the Bible that India is mentioned, it's mentioned in, in the scope of Ahasuerus' kingdom. He reigned from India unto Ethiopia. That was the known world, the civilized world at the time. King Ahasuerus had power over the entire world. He takes his ring off as a picture of authority and gives it to Haman, notice the last part of verse 12, in the name of the king Ahasuerus was it written and sealed with the king's ring. Now Haman, do you remember? Is a type of the Antichrist. Go to Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. Do me a favor, when you get to Revelation, keep your finger or bookmark or something there because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. Here's statement number five. In the same way that Haman is given power over the entire kingdom, which the kingdom is the known world, the civilized world at that time, 
The Antichrist is given power over the entire world. Now, some of you, you're real smart. You're going to say, wait a minute, Pastor. Ahasuerus is God the Father. He's given the authority to Haman. That doesn't make any sense. Okay, two thoughts. Number one, well, three thoughts. <laughs> Number one, stop thinking. You're not good at it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Here are the thoughts. First of all, remember the statement, symbolisms like a truck, it'll get you where you need to go, but eventually it breaks down. But even, even with that, though, even if you want to take it that far, the Antichrist takes power over the world. You don't think God's aware of that? Amen. You don't think God the Father allows it? The Bible says that, that, that God, the Bible says promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west. The Bible says that God is the judge, that he sets some up. Look, when the Antichrist becomes the power of the world, takes on the power of the world, it'll be with the permission of God the Father. Revelation 13, verse 7. And it was given unto him, this is the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. We'll come back to that in a minute. Notice, and power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. What power was given to Haman? Over the king's lieutenants and to the governors, every providence, to the rulers, every people, every providence, every people after their language. What was given to the Antichrist? Power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. So we see number five, in the same way that Haman is given power over the entire kingdom, the Antichrist is given power over the entire world. Keep your finger there in Revelation. Go back to Esther. Let me give you the sixth statement. I've been preaching for 36 minutes and we're halfway through the points, all right? So we're doing okay. You probably should have given a little more to the vision offering, but that's okay. (laughs) Esther chapter 3, look at verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not. Remember Remember Jesus taken during the time of his temptation? And the, and, and, and the devil says to Jesus, I'll give you all this if you worship me. By the way, the word worship is used synonymously throughout the Bible with bowing. That's why we don't bow in front of anybody. And, and worship is not this, oh, I'm at church, I'm worshiping. No, worship is when you bow your knee. That's what the Bible, that's what biblical worship is. You can study that out on your own if you'd like. Satan said to Jesus, hey, worship me and I'll give you all these. And, of course, Jesus refused with the word of God. Now, notice verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai bowed not, nor did him reverence, then was Haman full of wrath. And he thought scorn to lay hand on Mordecai alone. He wanted to kill Mordecai, but he didn't want to just kill Mordecai, for they had showed him the people of Mordecai. Wherefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews that were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, even the people of Mordecai. Because Mordecai would not bow to Haman. Haman did not just want to go to war with Mordecai. He wanted to go to war with Mordecai and to go to war with Mordecai's people. He wanted to kill all the people of Mordecai throughout the entire kingdom, which was the known world at that time. Go back to Revelation. What does the Antichrist want? The Antichrist wants to be worshipped. He sets up an image. And the Bible says everyone that will not worship the image will be put to death. Notice Revelation. I'm I'm sorry, I told you to go to Revelation 12. We're going to go there in a minute. Go to Revelation 13. Revelation 13. Look at verse 15 real quickly. Revelation 13, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Remember, they set up an image. I don't have time to develop this, but... This is known in the book of Daniel, in the book of Matthew, in the book of uh, uh, Mark, I think it is. It's known as the abomination of desolation or the uh, abomination that make it desolate. It's an image that needs to be worshipped. Revelation 13, 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many, notice, as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. Here's statement six. Haman hates Mordecai for not bowing to him. 
and persecutes Mordecai's people. In the same way that the Antichrist hates the Lord Jesus Christ and persecutes Christians who will not worship or bow to his image. Look at Revelation 13 and verse 7. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints. See, in the Old Testament, the Jews were God's people. Remember, they didn't get replaced till the New Testament. Haman goes to war with God's people. Here, the Antichrist, who Haman is a picture of the Antichrist, goes to war with the saints. Who are the saints? God's people. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The Bible says that the whole world is going to worship the image of the beast except for those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. See, the elect is not going to worship the beast. No saved person is going to bow to the image of the beast. And because they won't bow, the Antichrist wants to kill them. And Haman wants to kill Mordecai and Mordecai's people because they refuse to bow. So in the same way, in the same way that Haman hates Mordecai for not bowing and persecutes Mordecai's people, the Antichrist hates Jesus Christ and persecutes Christians who will not bow and worship his image. Go to Revelation chapter 12, look at verse 17. Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Revelation 12, 17. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who does, who does he go to war with? Who does he make war with? The remnant of her seed and those that have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who are those? That's you. That's me. New Testament Christians. So we see this allegory. I mean, we're, we're, we're uh, six statements into this. Have I convinced you yet that the book of Esther is a big allegory of end times prophecy? If you're not convinced, I got six more, right? Go back to Esther. Keep your place in Revelation. Go back to Esther. Esther chapter 4. We'll do this one quickly. Esther 4, verse 13. Esther 4, 13, 14, some of the most famous verses in the book of Esther. Esther 4, 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. Remember, Mordecai finds out that Haman wants to kill all the Jews, and he tells Esther, Esther, you've got to do something about this. You've got to go. And Esther's afraid to speak up. She's afraid to speak and defend her people. Verse 13, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Here's statement number seven. In the same way that Mordecai cannot do his work but without Esther, I mean, did you catch that in the story? Because of where they're at. Because Esther is in the kingdom, and Mordecai is not. See, Mordecai would go and talk to the king if he needed to, if he could. Mordecai would do the work that needed to be done if he could, but he can't. In fact, Mordecai can only do the work that needs to be done in and through Esther. He has to influence Esther. He has to motivate Esther. He has to mobilize Esther to get Esther to do the work that Mordecai needs done. Now, if you remember our answer key, Mordecai is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Esther is a picture of New Testament believers. And in the same way that Mordecai can only do his work in the kingdom through Esther, Jesus Christ can only do his work in this world through the local New Testament church. Amen. I mean, the Bible says, you have to turn there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 19 and 20 says this, to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we do pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You know that God is not going to come down, the Lord Jesus Christ is not going to come down, angels are not going to come down and preach the gospel to anybody on earth? 
In fact, in the Bible, when Jesus, after his ascension, appeared to Saul and interrupted him on the road to Damascus, Jesus did not give the gospel to Saul. Jesus sent Ananias, a soul winner, to give the gospel to him. When the angel appears to Cornelius, an unsaved man who's praying and seeking God, the angel appears to Cornelius. The angel does not preach the gospel to Cornelius. He tells Cornelius, go find Peter, a soul winner, and he'll get you saved. You say, why is that? Here's why. Because in the same way that Mordecai could not do his work in the kingdom, but through Esther, the Lord Jesus Christ can only do his work in this world through the local New Testament church. It may be that you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. His work, he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled unto God. Go to Esther chapter 6. Let me give you the eighth statement. This was probably my favorite. Esther chapter 6 verse 7. And Haman answered the king. Remember, Esther has two banquets. We'll talk about the two banquets in a little bit. But Esther holds two banquets. At the first banquet, the king asks Esther, what, what, what do you want? What do you want me to give you? And she says, come back tomorrow. I'm going to have another banquet. And in between those banquets, the Bible says that Ahasuerus could not sleep. So he calls for the books of the Chronicles to be read unto him the history of the nation there, and he hears about, or he's reminded about the fact that Mordecai saved his life. And he asks this question. He says, what has been done for this man? And the, his servants say, nothing's been done for him. So the king chooses, decides, we got to do something for Mordecai. The next morning, Haman shows up at the gate, walks in, Ahasuerus says to Haman, what should be done for the man whom the king delighted to honor? Haman, being a very proud man, assumes that, uh, that, that the king is speaking about him, not knowing that he's speaking about Mordecai, his enemy. And he says, well, here's what I think you should do. Esther chapter 6, verse 7. And Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delighted to honor, let the royal apparel be brought, which the king used to wear, and the horse that the king rideth upon, and the crown royal which is set upon his head. He says, you know, what you should do is you should put him on a horse and you should put a crown on him and you should robe him as a king. That's what you should do for the man who the king delighted to honor. Verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, make haste and take the apparel and the horse. I want you to notice. And the horse, as thou hast said, and do even to Mordecai the Jew. Because you remember, Haman was coming to speak unto the king to hang Mordecai. Haman did not realize that they were having a conversation about Mordecai. He says, do this to Mordecai the Jew that sitteth at the king's gate. Let nothing fail of all that thou hast spoken. Now here's what's interesting. Haman has to go and find Mordecai, puts him on a horse, puts a crown on his head, puts the royal apparel, and parades him across the town, across the city, being glorified by Hazarus. This marks a shift in the book of Esther. Up to this point, Haman is rising while Mordecai and Esther are falling. But at this point, when Ahasuerus has Mordecai put, a, put on a horse with a crown on his head and paraded, the book shifts. Now, Mordecai is on the upswing and it marks Mordecai paraded on a horse marks the end and the fall of Haman. Look at verse 13, Esther chapter 6, verse 13. And Haman told Zeresh his wife, this is after the fact, after this event, and all his friends, everything that had befallen him. Then said his wise man and Zeresh his wife unto him, If Mordecai be of the seed of the Jews... Before whom thou hast begun to fall. Notice, there's now a shift, there's a, a, a rift, there's a change. Haman now begins to fall, that thou shalt not prevail against him, but shall surely fall before him. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Here's statement number 8. 
In the same way that Mordecai paraded on a horse with a crown on his head, marks the end of Haman, Jesus coming on a horse with a crown marks the end of the Antichrist. Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he the judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped with blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And here's what we learn. When Mordecai comes on a horse, it's over for Haman. And when Jesus comes on a horse with a crown, it's over for the Antichrist. Esther chapter 9. Go to verse 5. Esther chapter 9, verse 5. Let me give you the ninth statement. If you remember, the book of Esther has two pairs of two. Has two pairs of two. One is that there are two feasts, two banquets. The other is that there are two days of fighting. If you remember, Ahasuerus, after Haman is exposed, Ahasuerus gives Esther and Mordecai the permission, gives Esther and Mordecai the permission to take you know, the resources needed to fight against their enemies. And as a result, there's a big battle. Esther chapter 9, look at verse 5. Thus the Jews smote all their enemies with the stroke of the sword and slaughter and destruction and did what they would unto those that hated them. And in Shushan the palace, the Jews slew and destroyed 500 men. So there's a day of battle, a day of fighting, when God's people fight against the enemies of, of the Jews. But then they do it again, a second time. There's two days of battle. Look at verse 13. Then said Esther, If it please the king, let it be granted to the Jews which are in Shushan to do tomorrow also according to this day's decree and let Haman's ten sons be hanged upon the gallows. We see two days of fighting. They fight on the 13th day. Then Esther says, We got to do it again. Hazarus, can we fight a second time? And Hazarus is like, why do we need to fight the second time? And he's like, because this book's a whole typology. we got to follow the end times events. So what, what do you mean? Here's what I mean. In the end times, the millennial reign of Christ is bookended by two fights, by two days of battle. The first battle, go to Revelation 19, is known as the Battle of Armageddon. It takes place before the millennial reign of Christ. Revelation 19, verse 19. See, there's all these odd things in the book of Esther. Why does it have to mention that Esther is the cousin of Mordecai? Why does Esther have to take two, uh, take, you know, pick, choose, ask for a second day of fighting? Well, it has to happen because this book is an allegory of things which are to come. And the truth is this, that in the end times, there are two major battles that bookend the millennial reign of Christ. The first, the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 19, verse 19. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies, this is the battle of Armageddon, gathered together to make war against him. Who's him? Jesus. The dispensationalists, you know, you watch your little left behind movie and they want to tell you that, oh, the battle of Armageddon is, is the Antichrist fighting against the Jews. Well, it looks, it looks like in Revelation 19 that he's fighting against him, Jesus Christ, the one who came on the white horse. That sat on the horse. And against his army, verse 20, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, which, were, which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls of the air were filled with their flesh. So, leading into the millennial reign of Christ, is the battle of Armageddon where the Lord Jesus Christ comes on the white horse with 10,000 of his saints, fights against the devil, the Antichrist, the false prophet, the kings of the earth, the armies of the earth, fights them, and then we go into the, the millennial, millennial reign of Christ. 
The devil is put in hell. I have to move quickly. You'll have to study this out on your own if you're not familiar with this. He's put in prison in hell for a thousand years. Go to Revelation chapter 20. We have the thousand year reign of Christ. And then verse 7 says this, and when the thousand years are expired, the millennial reign of Christ is over, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And again, you read all these prophetic dispensationalist books and they're going to tell you, Gog is Russia, Magog is Korea, or Gog is what, you know, Iran or Iraq, you know, all this stuff. Look, the battle of Gog and Magog happens after the millennial reign. When the thousand years are expired. Satan is loosed. He goes out to the nations of the earth. Look at verse 8. And shall go out to deceive the nations. These are the nations that are there after the millennial reign of Christ which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. See, in the end times, in the end times, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ is bookended by two battles. You have the battle of Armageddon going into the millennial reign of Christ. Then at the end of the millennial reign, when the thousand years are expired, you have the battle of Gog and Magog. And then we go into what's known as the eternal state. And of course, you have the judgment seat of Christ associated with the battle of Armageddon. You have the great white throne judgment associated with uh, the battle of Gog and Magog. I don't have time to go into that. You can study that on your own. The point is this. In end times events, there are two battles. Esther is an allegory of the end times. So the book of Esther has one battle. The Jews fight against uh, their enemies. But then Esther, the Holy Spirit of God, moves Esther and says, King, we got to do it again. We got to have a second day of battle. Why? Because there's two battles in the end times. We got to make this typology work. Here's statement number nine. In the same way that there were two days of fighting in the book of Esther, there were two battles, there will be two battles that bookend the end times events, the battle of Armageddon and the battle of Gog and Magog. Here's statement number 10. Keep your finger there in Revelation, go back to Esther. Esther chapter five. Not only were there two days of battle in the book of Esther, because remember there was two pairs of two. Two pairs of two. Not only were there two battles in the book of Esther, there are also two banquets. Esther chapter 5, verse 4. And Esther answered, if it seemed good unto the king. Remember, Esther is motivated by Haman. Yahweh are brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther goes to the king, even though she could lose her life, and she makes her request. Ahaziah says, ask whatever you want. Up to the half of the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says, I want you to come to banquet. Verse 4, And Esther answered, If it seem good unto the king, let the king and Haman come this day unto the banquet that I prepared for him. At the banquet, Ahasuerus says, What do you want? She says, Well, here's the thing, Ahasuerus. we got to make this match with end times. And not only are there two battles in end times prophecy, but there's two banquets in end times prophecy, so we got to do this again tomorrow. Look at Esther chapter 7, verse 2. Esther chapter 7, verse 2. And the king said unto Esther, notice, on the second day of, at the banquet, two banquets of wine, what is thy petition, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted thee. And what is thy request? And it shall be performed, even to the half of the kingdom. Esther held two banquets in the book of Esther. And in the same way, statement number 10, that Esther's, Esther held two banquets, there will be two feasts that also bookend the end times events. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Because you remember, there's two battles. There's two battles that bookend the end times events, right? The battle, the, uh, the battle of Armageddon, a thousand years later, the battle of Gog and Magog. Well, immediately after those two battles, there are two feasts. Now, it's not the kind of feast you're thinking of. I'm sure Esther's feast was better. But let's look at it. Revelation 19, verse 17. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying, To all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, 
So the angel calls all the birds, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God. Now the battle of Armageddon has not yet been fought. This is what I like about this passage. Jesus has not yet won the battle of Armageddon. But before the battle even happens, the angel calls all the fowls and says, Hey, gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, the banquet of the great God. What are we going to eat, the birds may ask. Verse 18, that ye may eat the flesh of kings. By the way, your parrot and your parakeet would eat you if they could. (laughs) That ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and of them that sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war with him that sat on the horse, and against his armies, and the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, and uh, with which he deceived them, that had received the mark of the beast, and then that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone, and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth. That's the battle of Armageddon. Don't miss the last part of verse 21. And the fowls were filled with their flesh. After the battle of Armageddon, God puts on a banquet, the supper of God, the the supper of the great God for the fowls of the air. He calls all the birds to eat the flesh of all the men who fought and died in the battle of Armageddon. So there's a feast immediately after the battle of Armageddon, before the millennial reign. Here's what's interesting. Go to Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39. We're almost done. Ezekiel 39. If you open up your Bible, just right in the center, you're more than likely to find the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 39. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel. Ezekiel 39. Ezekiel 39 is a passage that deals with the end times battle of Gog and Magog. Remember, the battle of Gog and Magog takes place after the millennial reign. In these passages in Ezekiel, we're reading about the battle of Gog and Magog. Really interesting. What happens at the end of the battle of Gog and Magog? The same thing that happened at the end of the battle of Armageddon. Ezekiel 39, verse 4. Thou shalt fall upon the mountains of Israel, thou and all thy bands and the people that is with thee, and I will give thee unto the ravenous birds of every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured. Look at verse 17, same chapter. And thou, son of man, thus saith the Lord God, speak unto every feathered fowl and to every beast of the field. Assemble yourselves and come, gather yourselves on every side to my sacrifice that I do sacrifice for you, even a great sacrifice unto the mountains of Israel, that ye may eat the flesh and drink the blood, and ye shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth and of the rams, of lambs and of goats and of bullocks and of them that, uh, 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 of the fatlings of Bashan. And ye shall eat fat till ye be full and drink blood till ye be drunken of my sacrifice, which I have sacrificed for you. Thus shall ye be filled at my table with horses and chariots, with mighty men and with all men of war, saith the Lord God. You say, that sounds a lot like the battle of Armageddon. You're right, but it's actually a reference to the battle of Gog and Magog. See, the millennial reign is bookended by two battles, the battle of Armageddon, the battle of Gog and Magog. But at the end of both battles, God holds a banquet or a feast or a supper for the fowls of the air to come eat the bodies. Of his enemies. So, in the same way that Esther had two days of fighting, end times prophecy gives us two days of fighting the battle of Armageddon, the battle of Gog and Magog. In the same way that Esther held two banquets, end times prophecy gives us two banquets the fowls eating after the battle of Armageddon and the fowls eating after the battle of Gog and Magog. We're almost done. I got two more, okay? Go back to Esther chapter 10, if you would. Do you remember in the book of Esther how the king's law could not be changed? We learned this from the book of Daniel. I'll read this, just little parts of Daniel 6.12. It says, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Daniel 6.15, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king establisheth may be changed. 
Remember the reason that Ahaziah is, because remember when, when Ahaziah finds out that Haman's a bad guy, Esther says, can you just reverse it? Can you just disannul the law? And he's unable to because the law of the Medes and the Persians is that the law cannot be altered. So here's statement number 11. In the same way that the king's law doesn't change, and the king cannot go against his law, God's word doesn't change, and God cannot go against his own word. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Esther chapter 10. Notice verse 1. The last chapter of Esther is three verses. We're going to deal with it next week as we spend Easter with Esther. But let me just read these to you and we'll finish up. And the king of Hazarus laid a tribute upon the land and upon the isles of the sea. And all the acts of his power and of his might. And the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai. Whereunto the king advanced him. Are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of the media, of media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews, and accepted of the similitude of his brethren, seeking the wealth of his people, and speaking the peace of all his seed. See, let me let you in on a little secret. The book of Esther is actually about Mordecai. In some ways, it could be called the book of Mordecai. Because when Haman is hanged, and Mordecai shows up on the white horse, you'll notice that Esther kind of goes to the background and Mordecai steps out to the forefront. And by the way, let me just say this. Today, God's work is done through the local New Testament church, through believers. But one day when Jesus returns, we will take a step back and he will take a step forward. One day when Jesus returns, like John, we will say he must increase and we must decrease. The story of the book of Esther is actually the story of Mordecai, of how Mordecai was advanced, of how Mordecai was promoted, of how Mordecai, the Bible says there in verse 2, the declaration of the greatness of Mordecai is what the book of Esther is all about. Whereunto the king advanced him is what the book of Esther is all about. Verse 3, for Mordecai the Jew was next unto King Ahasuerus. And let me just say this, this is my final statement. In the same way that Mordecai is promoted and reigns under the king, Jesus will be promoted and will reign under God the Father. You don't have to turn there, I'll just read this for you. Philippians 2.9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. To the glory of God the Father. Say, Pastor, what's the point of the sermon? Well, if you haven't been paying attention, <laughs> it's an allegory. It's a typology. Let me give you a couple of takeaways we'll finish up. First of all, takeaways regarding to the book of Esther. You may remember that I brought this up earlier in our study, and it is this, that the book of Esther is often under attack. Many people will argue that the book of Esther is not a legitimate book of the Bible. One of the reasons they get for this is because the book of Esther never mentions the name of God. We've talked about my opinion as to why that is. But people will attack the book of Esther and say, well, it never mentions the, the name of God, so therefore it must not be a legi legitimate book of the Bible. Well, here's the thing. When you consider the fact that historically, chronologically, the book of Esther takes us to the end of the Old Testament. I mean, pretty much right after the life of Esther and Mordecai, we go into 400 years of silence, and the next time God speaks, the next time God moves, the next time God does anything, it's with a man named John the Baptist, and we are now in the New Testament. So isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that in the last and final historical book of the Old Testament, God gives us this great narrative. We've been studying it for like eight weeks. These amazing stories of these people, but hidden and intertwined in that story. He says, let me tell you what's about to happen. Let me give you a foretaste.